All right, would you take your Bible and open it to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, the sower. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark, and we have come to the famous parable of the sower. Some have said the parable should be called the parable of the soils. You could call it the sower and the soils. The focus is on both. The focus is about the sower of the seed and the soils that receive that seed. And each time the Bible is open, there is an invitation to you and to me to ask yourself this question afresh. What kind of soil are you? Every time the Bible is opened, every time you open the Bible in your own devotional time, every time you come into a service and you hear the Word of God expounded, you have an opportunity, a fresh opportunity to ask, what kind of soil am I? That's a good introspective question. That's a healthy question. It's a good question. It's a question that every Christian needs to look at because what it does is it helps prepare your heart to make application for the word. For the word is living and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and it's able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Every time the word of God is open, it has the life to go down deep. But there is an interesting caveat in the Bible, and it is this. The Bible says that a lot of what is produced ultimately when it comes to the word of God has to do with the preparation of the soil. And the soil becomes an image of our hearts in the parable. The one telling the parable is Jesus. So we certainly want to pay close attention to what he has to say. And this parable of all parables is a good one to know and to know it well because it explains a lot about what goes on in the lives of individuals. We are often perplexed when we uh, watch individuals over the years, people that we know, people that we love, who hear the same Bible teaching that we hear, the same seed goes forth that goes forth into a group like this, and we're often perplexed as to what's going on with those individuals. Sometimes people are, uh, you know, there's no evidence of fruit in their lives. We, we know they're hearing the same word. We know that word is alive. How do we explain this? How do we explain someone that we saw happily walk down the aisle, begin to, uh, you know, talk of their conversion, begin to tell of Jesus and the Bible and the gospel, and a couple years later, they're nowhere to be found. How do we explain the converts, quote-unquote, that seem to have no evidence of salvation in their life? I think this particular parable explains a lot of that. It's Jesus telling us what's going on, and I think uh, this will answer a lot of our questions. If you'd bow with me, Father, as we bow before your holy word, we know it is true, it is living, And we know it is effective, it is profitable to the servant of God who wants to hear and respond in a way that would bring you glory. And that's our intention this morning. I know the hearts of many, many folks here. I know their faces. I know many of their stories. And I know that they're hungry to hear from you, Lord. So would you speak? Your servants are listening. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church both individually and corporately. May you speak, may I get out of your way, and may um, your word bring uh, abiding fruit in each of our lives. We pray 
in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, what we've seen so far is many opinions emerging about the Messiah, Jesus. There are family members who are saying he has lost his senses, as we saw last week. They're trying to talk him down, do an intervention, bring him home. We don't know all the motivation, but we certainly know what they said. They said, we believe he's lost his senses, and they were trying to bring him home. The religious leaders were saying he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They accused him of being demonically possessed. And there were all these varying opinions. In fact, when Jesus got to Caesarea Philippi, at the end of his ministry, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And even at that point, there was much confusion and much opinion that was going forth in terms of who Jesus was. And he was doing mighty miracles that the world had never seen before. He was doing them in incredible numbers. And yet the opinions of people varied and the motivations of people varied. He confronts people's motivations in John 6 when he tells them, you know, don't follow for the wrong reasons. And on and on it goes. There's a lot of different um, dynamics that are working in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think it's at this critical time that he tells this story because of the variation of opinion and how people are listening. The question that would probably resonate in many of our souls is why doesn't everybody respond positively to Jesus? Don't you ask that? Why doesn't everybody respond positively to the gospel? After all, it's a message of hope. It's a message of eternal life. It's a message of, you know, bliss in heaven and shunning a place called hell. Do you think that it is because many people just brush it aside? Many people maybe don't really believe it or many people think that they can wait until a last moment when they can you know, give a testimony of faith? Well, Jesus is gonna give four different responses to the word of God or the gospel and the issue is going to be the heart. Look at Mark 4, verse one. And he, Jesus, began to teach again by the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, in such a very great multitude. Some commentators believe that this is the biggest crowds that his ministry has drawn so far. Such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. Sitting down is the classic posture of a teacher ready to teach. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. Now we know that Jesus had a getaway boat ready, as we saw a few messages ago, just in case the crowd trampled him. And now the numbers had gotten so large that Jesus actually got into the boat, and the boat became a type of floating pulpit. I have heard some people say that the way the, the waves and the wind and all that happens there, sometimes your voice would carry on the water. So maybe because of the huge multitude of people, it was easier for him to communicate because we don't have amplification back in the day. But he who made the sea uses the sea as his megaphone. And I like it. Isn't that awesome? And so you can imagine Jesus is on the sea, close inshore. The waves are probably gently lapping against the seashore. And people, you know, maybe you can see them as a huge arc of people are all there. Some of you have been to big baptism ceremonies at the beach, and you can kind of get the image that way, you know, with maybe thousands of people on the shore and maybe a few people in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus has this floating pulpit, and he begins to share 
this classic parable. He was teaching them many things, verse 2, Mark 4, in parables. The Greek word for parable is parabole. We introduced this last Sunday. And he was saying to them in his teaching. So see the word parable there? It's used, I think, three or four times in the Old Testament. One of the places that you may recognize is Psalm 78, verse 2. It says, I will open my mouth in a parable. The Hebrew word is mashal. I will utter dark sayings of old. To break down a simple definition of the word parable, it is a comparison. It is to lay one thing aside another thing to bring light to a spiritual truth by an everyday story. And in an agrarian society where people were very used to farming and sowing seed and making sure that they did what they could do for the benefit of the crop and for the benefit of their family, this was a very uh, easy story to track with. So in a parable, truth is expressed in concrete pictures rather than abstractions. Some people have said parables typically have one main point or the subpoints in the story are pointing to the main point, but it is by virtue of definition a comparison. So the story is told, and it's, and it's this uh, idea that we need to get home. It's a earthly story with a spiritual point, or for this this morning, it's a point about the kingdom of God. It's, a, it's an earthly story that you could grab onto, and we all can appreciate the power of a story well told to reveal a deeper spiritual picture. That's a parable. And one classic example, and sometimes the people listening to parables don't know what's going on or don't know the full meaning of it, is remember when the prophet Nathan came to David. David had sinned with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 12, and Nathan told him a story about two neighbors, and the one neighbor had the little ewe lamb, and as he tells the story, David's getting more and more angry as he hears what has happened with the poor family and what the rich family did to the poor family. You can go back and look at 2 Samuel 12. But then at the end of the parable, Nathan says these stunning words to the king. He says, you are the man. You are the one I'm telling this story about. David was so angry, he wanted that man to pay the ultimate price by hearing the parable from the prophet. And yet David didn't realize until the very end of the story. In fact, he had to be told, you are that man. It is very easy sometimes to hear the word of God and think of somebody else or rib our neighbor as truth is being shared. Did you, did you hear that? Your, sometimes your spouse comes out of church with bruised ribs. Some of them are wearing that football protector thing now when they go into church, right? Or sometimes when the truth of God's word is shared, we often think, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this message. In fact, I'm going to order the CD just for them. And Jesus says, listen to this. Listen. In fact, this parable will be framed with the words, listen, I wore this shirt specifically today in honor of this parable so that you would not fall asleep, (laughs) so that you would listen. I thought about white pants as well, but I thought, you know, maybe maybe that's a little too much for the 9 a.m. crowd. He said, listen to this, verse 3, behold, The sower, remember he's preaching from the boat, huge crowd, went out to sow. Literally, he went out to scatter the seed. Now, if you look at the picture up on the screen for a moment, 
There's kind of an image of what a sower would look like. And he's casting seed. And he's throwing it out and preparing for the harvest. And he throws it out and throws it out. And the idea here is, please listen. And in the crowd, there are variations of listeners, like there are in every crowd. It's interesting as a speaker to watch various crowds in various venues. Yeah, this is going to convict all of you, and now you're going to try to look at me for the whole rest of the message. But, <laughs> but you can tell oftentimes who an engaged listener is. They're paying attention. They're tracking with what you have to say. And Jesus says, please listen. Listen to this. Listen up. This is crucial. This is critical, is the sense here. Please listen. Have you ever been having a conversation with somebody? Please turn to Ecclesiastes. Hold your place in Mark, which is right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 5. Have you ever been uh, sharing with somebody and you know that the lights are on, but nobody's home? We have a famous saying in our culture, in one ear, out the other, and we're trying to get a point across, and the other person's trying to get their point across. Ever been in a conversation like this? Please listen to me, and the other person says, please listen to me, and back and forth you go, and everybody's trying to speak, right? And we're getting the idea that even though we have an important point to make, and every point I want to make is important, the other person is not cooperating, well, when Jesus speaks, we should pay close attention. Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon writes these words. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. He says, guard your steps. Literally, guard your feet as you go to the house of God. Draw near to what? To listen. Rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Guard your steps when you go, go to the house of God. Draw near, which is another way to say when you worship, part of your worship is to listen. I know a lot of us, when we think about the concept of worship, we think about music and opening our Bibles. But I don't know that a lot of us have factored in that one of the main ways that you worship is through listening. Listening with the intention to obey. Jesus told Mary, uh, said of Mary, when Martha was running around in Luke 10 and she was literally preparing a meal for the Lord, and we could understand that stress, want the meal to be good. But Mary had chosen the better part, and what Mary was doing was an act of worship. She was seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. Worship is about hearing God's voice with the intention of obeying. And that's the point of the passage. When you draw near, which is used in, by the Jewish priest of drawing near in worship, we are to draw near to listen. It would seem to me then the sacrifice of fools is to come near but not listen. You know, we often speak of sacrifices of praise. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name, but Part of what I need to put on the altar is my ears as well. I need to put my tongue on the altar as well. <laughs> you know, when we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to be holy and pleasing to God, it is in those areas of what we listen to and what we do with it and how we speak that 
makes all the difference in terms of our walk with Jesus. If you turn back to Mark 4. And so Jesus says, listen up. I've got something to say that's very important. And Jesus was the master storyteller. He was a great storyteller. And one of these uh, days when, we're, when we finally go home to be with the Lord, we will get to hear perhaps him tell many stories. And it came about, Mark 4, verse 4, that he was sowing. So he introduces the sower. And the sower is sowing, and he said, some feed, some uh, seed, excuse me, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. So you have soil number one, and it is the seed sown beside the road. If you like to write in your Bible, you might want to just write that there, or if you're a note taker, soil number one is seed sown beside the road. Luke 8, verse 5, adds this uh, addition, and it was trampled underfoot. And then Mark tells us the birds, the seed that was sowed beside the road, the birds came and ate it up. Um, if you've ever tried to plant seed, I, I've done this a few times in my front yard. I had this patch of grass that uh, it, it became non-grass that just my front lawn, for whatever reason, it just would not grow. So I tried to use seed, you know, buy some of that seed at the local hardware store and pour it on this spot. But I found birds were just waiting in the wings, pun intended. <laughs> just waiting for me to exit so that they could eat my seed. You see, so then I, I you know, I tried to consult experts. And some experts say that you, you need to put this down so they'll think that there may be a predator close by. Or you need to put a topsoil down to protect the seed. But if the ground is not prepared properly and the seed just sits there, inevitably what happens is the birds come. Now the roads in ancient Israel were between the fields or between the farms that people owned and people would travel on the road so that they would become hard packed and, and the sower would also walk down the roads and this is where Jesus and his disciples were, by the way, when they were gleaning the grain in the earlier chapter we studied in Mark. They would walk on these roads and they were somewhat public and they would be hard-packed, tracking and footprints and, and, and uh, forcing it down. And so the seed was exposed and it didn't take good root. And uh, all of a sudden the birds came and ate it up. Look at verse 5. The other seed fell on rocky ground or rocky places, Matthew 13, 5, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen... It was scorched, and because it had no root, keyword no root, it withered away. Soil number two is verses five and six. It's the soil sown in rocky places. Now, rocky places here does not mean corona dirt. Because if you ever tried to plant anything in corona, you put the shovel in, it's like, Bing! I think there's more rock than there's actual dirt in corona. But that's not really the image here. The image here is of limestone uh, that's in much of Israel that's just two, three inches beneath the surface. So the image would be something like this. If you had a place of concrete in your yard, let's say you had a basketball court or a nice square uh, piece of concrete, and let's say that you put two or three inches of soil on it, and then you threw seed on top of that, and you watered it, and the sunlight hit the, the seed in the soil. 
Well, what would happen is that that would probably take off quickly, but then the root can only go so far and it would hit your concrete. Here, just exchange concrete for the limestone in Israel. And so it looked good on the surface and it went up quickly, but then all of a sudden it hits this impenetrable layer of limestone and there's no root. The roots cannot go deep. So it looks good on the surface, but as soon as the sun scorches that little plant, it can't get its roots down and it immediately withers and dies. That's soil number two, the seed sown on rocky ground. Luke 8, 6 in a parallel account says, other seed fell on rocky soil. As soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. The moisture can't get down into the roots. The plant can't get down with its good root system. And so it's exposed, lack of roots, and it dies. Other seed fell among the thorns, verse 7. And the thorns came up and choked it. And it yielded no crop. Soil number three, if you're taking notes, is the seed sown among thorns, an infested area. Uh, I hate weeds. Personally, I have a personal vendetta against weeds. And uh, I don't like to pull weeds. Weeds are a pain. But if you're going to prepare soil properly, you need to get as many of the weeds out as you can. Because you know, as you begin to water the seed and you want your crop to grow well, if the weeds are in there, they tend to often dominate. And they can choke out that which you're trying to produce. And so notice on soil number three, the seed sown among thorns, the result is that the crop is choked, no yield, no crop, soil number three. And other seed fell into the good soil. Soil number four is good soil, if you're taking notes, and they grew up and increased. They yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. The result of soil number four, good soil, is a great crop and a great yield. In fact, in reading on this, uh, commentators said that if you had a tenfold increase in a crop, it was a bumper crop in Israel. 30, 60, and 100 fold are all incredible yields. So, this is all uh, stuff that's truly phenomenal. And of course, the 100 fold uh, uh, increase is amazing. And then Jesus said these words as he frames it with the exhortation to listen. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now he's on the boat preaching to a vast multitude of people. And he asks the question, do you have ears to hear? Or, if you're tracking with this story, what kind of soil are you? And Luke tells us, in Luke's parallel account, that he said it again and again and again. He kept repeating it. After he would say something, he would call out, Luke 8, verse 8, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Would that annoy you if a preacher kept saying that? I just did it. Are you annoyed? <laughs> Another way to put this is if you can understand it, then understand it. These are verses from Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2, 7, 11, 17, 29. Revelation 3, 6, 13, and 22. Go back and listen to the recording if you want to grab those scriptures. Seven times to the seven churches. The Lord of the church says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's seven times in Revelation. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. Jesus is saying, would you open up your ears and be a good listener 
And all of those exhortations in Revelation 2 and 3 are written to the church, not to unbelievers, not to so-called half-hearted listeners, hopefully, to the church, to his people. He asks his people, what kind of listener are you? You see, so far in the parable, I could step back and say, oh, this is a challenge to people who are non-Christians. And maybe that's a legitimate take of Mark 4, but in Revelation 2 and 3, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this to his people, or at least those who profess to be his people. Would you turn to the book of James, which is towards the back of the New Testament? James chapter 1. James, who writes a shoe leather gospel. What's that mean? James 1. It means he writes where the rubber hits the road, man. He's saying, look, live out your faith. James 1 verse 22 says these words. James 1 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word. By the way, James was the half brother of Jesus. One of the brothers, by the way, who did not believe in him until after the resurrection. One of the brothers who had thought he lost his senses in Mark 3. Now, James has become a believer, and he says these words. James 1.22, Prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, and I look in the mirror, and what I see is pretty much how I feel. <laughs> and then there's other times when I'm pleasantly surprised. Here's what I mean. Sometimes I feel worse than I look. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. But anyway, maybe it's the reverse for you. <laughs> but here's the deal. The image is of a person who looks at themselves and see what, sees what they look like. And then once they leave that, they forget what kind of person they are. Uh, some of this manifests itself in people with eating disorders. They can't see themselves in a healthy way. So they look in the mirror, and there's a true image there, but then when they leave that image, they, they forget what kind of person they actually are. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man shall be what? He'll be blessed in what he does. We talk a lot about blessing in the Christian church. Blessed. I want to be blessed. James just told you how you get blessed. You do what God says. Back to Mark 4. Now, as soon as he was alone, so Jesus now, um, apparently this is a, even though there's going to be more parables to follow, this is kind of a, a, a pause in the story and it gives us some insight into the question that was asked. As soon as he was alone, Mark 4.10, probably occurred later. His followers, along with the 12, so more than the 12, began asking him about the parables. So they wanted an explanation. They weren't completely tracking with the meaning of what he was saying. And they had asked him earlier in Matthew, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he was saying to them, to you, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, verse 11, but those who are outside get everything in parables in order that while seeing they may see and not perceive, while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be 
forgiven. Now, as much as this is a bit of an enigma and it might be a little hard to interpret, one thing I would say in keeping with the parable is the essence of what Jesus is saying is that the condition of one's heart determines the receptivity to truth. Would you agree? But you say, but the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Yes, that's true. But there's another verse I want you to see, and it's found in Luke, and I think it's something to wrestle with theologically. Luke 8, this is the parallel account. This is important for you to see. Look at verse um, 15, Luke 8, 15. It says, and the seed in the good soil, Luke 8, 15, these are the ones who have heard the word. What does your Bible say? Luke 8, 15, in an honest and what? Good heart. They hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, I know that in theology, Jeremiah 17, 9 is used a lot, and we know where the heart is. We know the heart is sick. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it if you turn back to Mark? However, there is an intimation here. The Bible is making it clear that soil that is prepared to hear the word will be more receptive to the word. Now, how does the preparation happen? How do you break up the fallow ground? How do you get the soil ready? Sometimes the soil gets ready through, you ready? Trials, persecution, problems. Sometimes we're a little bit more ready to hear truth when the soil's a bit broken up. See, pride is a picture of hardness. The the Bible uses the image of the stiff-necked or the hard-hearted person. The seed hits and the birds immediately come because there's no penetration there. They don't want to hear it. They've got other things, people to see, things to do. You know what I'm talking about. But sometimes when life throws you a curveball and the ax has hit the soil and you're like, ow. Then you wander into a church or someone shares the gospel and you're a little bit more open. Sometimes the opening is a wound. In fact, many of you, if you came up and shared your story today, would say, I became much more receptive to the word of God in a crisis, in a trial, in a difficulty. And that's okay, because that's often how God uses life circumstances to wake us up to things that are a little bit bigger than the world that we've created. And there were people who were hearing truth, and Jesus wasn't hiding it. He was sharing it directly, emphatically, The Pharisees were among those people who heard direct truth. He wasn't hiding anything. He was making clear the principles of the kingdom, and they didn't want to hear it. So at some point, when someone doesn't want to hear it, Jesus says they get everything in parables. They don't want to listen. They're not going to repent and return to me. Their heart is hard, and they're not even going to try to understand. In fact, this story would be a story that would indicate one's heart if one tried to spend a little time thinking about it afterwards, or maybe even took up some courage and asked for an explanation. I mean, after all, if you were tracking with the story and you had an idea of its meaning, would you not look for further clarification? Would you not look in your Bible study notes to see, look a little closer? I don't know that they had them back in the day. Would you not want to ask some questions or maybe contemplate a little further, especially if the one speaking this has been doing miracles left and right and things that nobody ever did before? Might you want to say, hmm, this could have some value for my life. 
Well, the religious leaders kept becoming this impenetrable shield and he said to them, do you not understand this parable 13? How will you understand all the parables? Many have concluded that this statement means this parable unlocks the key or is the key to unlocking all the other parables. I'll let you wrestle with that one as well, but it's very important. And he explains. The sower, 14, sows the word. Now you know, from the lips of Jesus, the seed is the word of God. That's what the sower sows, the word. I have a question. Are you a sower? Are you? Do you believe, and, and think, of, think of it this way, isn't, this, isn't seed a great image for God's word? Because it has life in it. It has all the, uh, the value and potential for exploding life. In the right conditions, a seed can produce an incredible crop just with the receptive soil, sunlight, and water. can be amazing. And this is the image of the word. Luke 8, 11 says the seed is the word of God. Matthew 13, 19 says the, word, the seed is the word of the kingdom. It is the salvation gospel or more generally it is the word of God. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25, if you want to write it down, it says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides for how long? Forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. He begins to go through the soils. He says, these 15 are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. Mark uh, 3, 4, 15. And when they hear, this is the image of the birds now, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. You might want to write verse 4 in your margin, soil number 1 next to verse 15. And Jesus' language shifts, would you notice? Away from soil to the words these in verse 15. These are the ones uh, where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Would you note that it's very clear that Jesus is saying that the soil now is people specifically people's hearts. And the first soil with the bird image is an image of what Satan does. And Satan waits in the wings like the birds in the original parable. And when the seed hits a hard-hearted person or a stiff-necked person, immediately Satan swoops in and steals away what has been sown. That is why in gospel ministry there is spiritual warfare. We do need to pray that God would prepare people's hearts, that God would do something to maybe soften the hardness there because Satan waits. Is Satan involved in when people are preaching the gospel? Yes, he is. But he can only do this because the soil's hard. So how would this work? Well, let's say you share the gospel with somebody and you, you get the idea that each seed is bouncing off of them. Well, what Satan will do is come in and just bring a distraction or get them to hear another idea. Ah, oh, nah, that can't really be true. Or they're so busy or whatever. 
And so all of a sudden, the seed is exposed. It's not gone down at all. It's easily, easy snatch, easily snatched away. Everybody with me so far? That's soil number one. It's a hard heart. And so it just bounces off of them, and Satan happily comes in and snatches it away. Matthew 13, 19, Jesus says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And so all of a sudden, this person hears the word of God, but there's absolutely no penetration of their heart. It's a hard-hearted person, and they move along. Such people, says R. Kent Hughes, hearts are hardened with presuppositions, distortions, prejudices, which steal them to the truth. They may be hostile, but very often they are simply uninterested. The main emphasis of Jesus' metaphor was busyness. These people beat the ground of their lives, asphalt hard with frenetic feet. This was and is a warning to people, quote unquote, on the go, who had no time for contemplation, who rarely give a second thought to the spiritual. As the truth bounces on the surface of some lives, Satan comes with a fluttering, chirping interest, some busy excitement, perhaps maybe some gossip, and flies away with the life-giving seed. This ground needs to be broken up. Often the plowing that is needed is some pain or stress or trial to soften that hardened surface to the relevancy of God's truth. This is how grace came into many of our lives, isn't it? Close quote. And so the evil one is there to snatch away the hard-hearted soil. Soil number two is explained in verse 16. In a similar way, these are the ones whom seed is sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. You write in your margin verses five and six. This is the explanation of those verses. This is soil number two, the stony ground, rocky place, quote-unquote, convert or hear, and Jesus' explanation. They have no firm root in themselves, 17, but are only temporary. Then when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, specifically not just life's challenges, but persecution because of what the Bible says. What does the Bible say here? Immediately they what? They fall away. They are what we might call a shallow convert. They have heard the word. There seems to be an introductory excitement a great response, but all of a sudden when it gets hard at work and someone mocks Christianity or brings a counter-argument to the Bible or brings some, some threat to their lives, they're gone. They were shallow. There was no true root in their lives, and the heat of persecution represented by the sun clarifies their true condition. They're nowhere to be found. They are scandalized by the idea that somehow they may have to endure some persecution for the faith. That's why it's important for those who regularly sow seed not to play games with listeners. Please hear me well. In the modern church, we're trying to make it so easy on the person who walks in because we don't want them to be offended. But if we don't give them the full story, they're going to be, many of them, stony ground converts And immediately when they walk out the door and all of a sudden they're facing spiritual warfare and the potential of persecution, which in some countries will happen the moment you leave the church and go home, all of a sudden it's going to be hard for them to stay the course. Uh, One writer puts it this way. He says, there is nothing more cheering than transform Christian people. And there is nothing more 
disintegrating than people who have been merely brushed by Christianity. People who have been sown with a thousand seeds, but in whose lives there is no depth and no footage. Therefore, they fall away when the first whirlwind comes along. It is the half-Christians who always flop in the face of the first catastrophe that happens because their dry intellectuality and their superficial emotionalism do not stand the test. So even that which they think they have is taken away from them. This is the word from which the anti-Christians too are cut. They are, all, they are almost always former half-Christians. A person who lets Jesus only halfway into his heart and is far poorer than 100% worldling. He does not get the peace that passes all understanding. He also loses the world's peace because his naivety has been taken from him. He's got knowledge, but now he's even more inoculated to the gospel because he let it go halfway home. And these are the people that are often debating uh, Christians who say they tried Christianity and it didn't work for, for them. Well, they had no root. Maybe it was an emotional conversion. Maybe it looked like the genuine McCoy, but there was no deep roots and they wither. And we're winding down. Look at verse 18. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among thorns. Soil number three. Connect verse seven to it. These are the ones who have heard the word. They've heard it. And the worries of the world. So here's the weed-infested soil. Literally, you could render this the distraction of this age, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. By the way, fruit-bearing is a main test for genuine salvation. And so these people, you know, the weeds were there, and it begins to grow up. The plant does, but all of a sudden the weeds kind of encircle it and choke off the life, and it produces nothing. And Jesus describes what the issue is here. It's distractions of the age, three Ds, verse 19. Distractions of the age, deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Have you met someone like that before? You're asking, well, what are they up to? What are they doing in their faith walk with Christ and they, it's clear that there are other things that dominate their lives. It's not a God-dominated life. It's the desire for other things are choking anything. Their heart is divided, one writer says, by irreconcilable loyalties. They attempt, Matthew 6, 24, to serve two masters. By the way, Luke 16, 13 through 15, says the Pharisees were lovers of money and they were scoffing at Jesus the deceitfulness of riches, the love of money is the root. Think of the image of now the seed uh, analogy. The love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of what? All kinds of evil. One writer talks about the deceitfulness of riches in this way. He says, this person tries to keep up with the Joneses. This involves buying things that you do not need to impress people that you do not like with money that you do not have. <laughs> a young man proposed to his girlfriend and he said, darling, I want you to know that I love you more than anything else in the world. I want you to marry me. I'm not rich. I don't have a yacht or a Rolls Royce like Johnny Brown, but I do love you with all my heart. She thought for a minute and then replied, I love you with all my heart too, sweetheart, but tell me more about Johnny Brown. <laughs> Close quote. That's sometimes how we are. 
A person who comes to church but never becomes committed to serving, who's continually preoccupied with other things, is a weed-infested heart. And so far, we have three soils that aren't looking so good. But Jesus rounds it out. But he says, and those are the ones, verse 20, on whom seed was sown on the good soil. So he's coming down now to the final soil, soil number four, found in verse eight, if you want to mark that, and just write soil number four. And those are the ones, one in four, one soil in four, on whom seed was sown on the good soil. I gave you Luke 8, 15 as a cross-reference. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. And I think you could easily say these words. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. These are the people who, the fruit is manifested in their character. Galatians 5, and 23 talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And they are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It comes out. The fruit is in their character. Secondly, it comes out in their good works. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should what? We should walk in them. And so the question is down to a couple things. One, are you a sower? Are you consistently trying to sow seed into people's lives? One plants, another waters, but God brings the increase. Are you involved in gospel ministry? Do you believe the gospel to the extent that you're trying to sow seed in other people's lives? And then the second question is what kind of soil are you? It's a question that I think Jesus intended for us to ask at the end of the parable. I'd like you to turn to Hosea 4 and we're done. Hosea 4. So just before Joel, just after Daniel, okay? Kind of the second half of the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets, Hosea 4, verse 12. I want to I get to a solution. I want to give you a solution for your life. And this is something I was thinking about this week. And I want to do this more personally. I want to ask every time I open the Bible, every time I turn on a radio sermon, every time I'm exposed to the seed of God's word, I want to ask myself a question. From this point forward in my life, I'm going to try to do this. Lord, make my heart good soil. I'm not going to worry about anything else right now in terms of everybody else and what they're doing with this. I'm going to ask myself the question, what kind of soil am I? You might say, well, is there a solution here? I mean, is this kind of a final thing? Is Jesus just preaching this and, and everybody's future is determined? No, I think some people there had a change of heart. That's often how we put it, right? I think some people who heard this maybe did some introspection. We know some of the religious leaders were converted to Christ. But the question becomes, what do we do? Like, what do we do if, if I'm one of the three and not the good soil? What if I am a hard-hearted person? Or what if, what if I have had shallow roots? Or what if the weeds of this world are choking out the word of God and the fruit therein? What do I do? Well, let's uh, go back and look at Hosea 4. And let's look at verse 6. 
My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hosea 4, 6. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. That's sobering. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me, and I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like people like priests, so I will punish them for their ways. I will repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase, because they have stopped, what? Giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, uh, departing from their God. Skip down to verse, uh, oh, I want. Oh, there was a verse that I had here that I so wanted to give to you. And I think I put it wrong here in my notes. It's break up the fallowed ground. Anybody know where it is? Oh, I'll let, just listen to it. I got the address wrong, I think. Uh, it's chapter 14. Anybody got some music that you can play right now? No, it's not there. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to just read it for you and we'll find it later. 10, 12. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Here it is. This is really what I wanted to leave you with. Hosea 10, verse 12. So with a view to righteousness. I think we're in chapter four because we needed to hear that other stuff too. So with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, break up your fallow ground. It sounds like it's something that you can do. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to reign righteousness on you. Would you pray? Father, thank you for your word. It is indeed alive, not always comfortable indeed, but true and right and profitable for soil that's prepared to receive it. And I know, Lord, that it is our desire. I think everybody in this room hopefully could say this. It's our desire to be good soil and to be fruitful people. We talk a lot in life about fruitfulness and we want to be fruitful. Well, Lord, this is the key, being good soil. And so, Lord, if there is some hardness that remains in our hearts, some shallow places, some weed-infested corners, would you remove it from us, Lord, and lead us in the everlasting way? Lord, forgive us for the presumptive way that sometimes we approach our Bibles. But thank you that you are so faithful. You give us the key to unlock the whole thing. You just say, break up the ground. Just spend a little time in heart preparation and the seed will go in and it will be productive. And sometimes we gotta look for the hard places. Sometimes we gotta look for the shallow places and dig a little. Sometimes we have to look for places where the weeds are choking out the truth. And Lord, when that happens, 
We will be a person firmly planted by streams of water that bear fruits in its season. Whatever we do will prosper. Lord, we don't want to be like the, the man who doesn't pay attention and he's like the chaff that's blown away. So let our, our roots sink deep, deeper maybe than they've ever been before. Let us be rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you're so patient. Thank you that you come into the garden of our lives and you often show us areas where there's shallowness or hardness or weed infested infested places. And you say, pay attention to that. Deal with that. I want to go deeper in your life. Thank you, Father, that that's the work that you do in your church. Maybe you're here this morning and with your head and heart bowed, you have not even had that first seed come in. You've not been born again, but you'd like to be. Maybe you have a wound or a place in your life where something is hit that is making you more receptive than ever before. Then let it come in. Just trust him with that. He died on the cross for you and rose from the dead and he wants to save you and make you a productive person for the kingdom's sake. So just something like this, if it's you, if you want to rededicate your life and maybe this is spoken to you in other ways, then something very simple yet very profound. And it should be the intention of our hearts when we pray it. Jesus, pray it out loud if it's you, save me. Let your word, your gospel come deep into my heart. Forgive me. Please break up the fallowed ground in my life. Save me, Lord. Change me from the inside out. I turn from my sin and I put my full trust in Jesus. I believe that you're Messiah. I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. I put my faith in you. Make my life a place where your word flourishes. Lord, bless that person who's trying to articulate the right words They don't have to have perfect words. They just have to have a heart that you can see that's ready. So may you bless that person with sweet conversion. May you just break up the ground so that they can know that you're present, that you love them, and that you'll bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.